வணக்கம் ராதிகா வணக்கம் very good to see you thank you for inviting me for this podcast uh my pleasure uh, so today my guest is radhika kulkarni uh, she retired as vice president at saas where she was responsible for the world's leading analytics software products portfolio under her leadership or gained recognition as a key contributor to scalability and performance of algorithms in statistics machine learning forecasting data mining econometrics and so on She has an outstanding professional recognition as a well-respected leader in analytics with invited lectures and keynotes at international conferences, university distinguished lectures and at customer visits. Radhika is an Informs fellow and a Worms award winner. She serves on many academic advisory boards and in 2022 she'll be the president of Informs. Her current focus is to increase collaboration between all the disciplines needed for the successful practice of OR and analytics to solve complex problems. Radhika, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. I'm so happy. Ni Sakyama, how are you? <laughs> thank you Anand for inviting me and Narumba Sakyam. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh from which part of India do you come from? So I belong to Tamil Nadu the state of Tamil Nadu where the primary language spoken is Tamil so that's why I can speak Tamil which is what uh, you just spoke a few words yeah. uh, my mother tongue though is Telugu so confuses people quite often because how can you be from Tamil Nadu and still speak Telugu well I do so <laughs> my mother tongue is Telugu my um, home uh, state is uh, Tamil Nadu Uh, so i speak both tamil and telugu uh, and uh, i also learned hindi in school and my husband speaks marathi so i speak marathi so. wow needless to say you speak english too so yes of course yeah. <laughs> right so you you were all speaking tamil at home in india uh, in india we were speaking telugu Um, oh. my, with my family with my family i spoke telugu but uh, i'm very very comfortable in tamil because my parents uh, lived in tamil nadu when they were growing up and they're comfortable in tamil so uh, i can say you know we are kind of dual dual lingual uh, but uh, telugu is what we primarily spoke mm-hmm. i'm comfortable in tamil yeah with, well. with your siblings too you spoke uh, telugu yes yes Yeah, oh. I spoke Telugu and sometimes in Hindi because we used to lived in the north of India for many years. So Yeah. It's yeah. actually very common in India to speak multiple languages. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, my dad is also from Tamil Nadu and my mom moved to Chennai at a very young age uh and grew up there too. At that time it was called Madras. Uh so I can understand some Tamil and even speak some random words and uh short sentences. <laughs> uh but yenaka tamil nalla pesa theriyada you're doing very well anand <laughs> all in all it's an incredibly difficult language to learn right uh, it is it is but not when you learn from childhood then it becomes easier yeah. my sister in law she she cannot tolerate me trying to speak uh tamil for 30 seconds so she immediately gets grips <laughs> <laughs> and asks me to stop is that porum porum you know she gets a little bit uh, annoyed uh but you lived in many places in india right 
Yes, um, my father worked for the central government in India and uh, for the post and telegraphs department actually and so he used to get posted uh, in multiple places in India and we moved with him and so I've lived in many different states within India and as you know in India almost every state has a different language so you kind of picked up some of the local languages but I always went to an English medium school so that I didn't have to change my medium of instruction and so that's how we manage. So I've lived in multiple uh, places within India. Yeah, uh, different language with uh, particular uh, alphabets too, right? So yes, <laughs> yes. The script is also different in um, in almost all the languages. That's correct. Yeah. And what did you learn from living in different places in India? Uh, that, uh, you know, there are people might have different languages and different customs, but at the end of the day, I think uh, the fundamental nature of everybody is the same um, when you, you know, so, and by and large, most people were very friendly and very welcoming. So uh, it was a great experience to live uh, in many parts of India. Yeah, it's like almost living in a different country perhaps yes uh, yeah i always say that living in the different states in india in india is like different uh, living in different countries within europe you know where everywhere there is a different language and um, you know in fact in india you even have a different script as you said so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting experience but it enriches you because you become much more cosmopolitan and understand that there are different perspectives kinds of people and uh, you learn to um, recognize the differences and celebrate them as well mm -hmm. uh, I saw in one of your interviews that at some point you were the only girl in your math class in high school yeah um, I did my high school in a city called Bhopal in the state of Madhya Pradesh so uh, when I joined there uh, I we, we had to pick whether we want to study uh, maths, physics, chemistry, or biology, physics, and chemistry. So in ninth grade, I, my path was pretty much determined because I chose math, physics, and chemistry. And in the maths class, I realized that I was the only girl in the maths class. It was a small class, but uh, that didn't bother me. It was still um, because I liked the subject and I think I was pretty good at it so it was it was uh, a, a nice experience for me to be there the the maths teacher he was uh, very supportive and he would also all that uh, you know he would call upon me to answer questions and uh, you know I was um, you know uh, uh, the best student in the class ah. so you know it's actually uh, so I felt like hey you know I have a right to be here and uh, and the teacher was very proud of me and so that helped <laughs> <laughs> very good uh, you were actually stuck for a year because you were very young to start college Oh, yes. Uh, that's an interesting part of my life because I finished uh, in um, Bhopal in the state of Madhya Pradesh. I graduated from uh, high school and that's when you start undergraduate. And just when I graduated, my father was transferred to Tamil Nadu where uh, Chennai or Madras is. Mm -hmm. And in Tamil Nadu, they had a very strict age requirement 
for join for admission in college. You had to be 15 years and six months old. <laughs> I was going to complete only 15 years and three months. And so no matter what we tried, they would not waive that restriction. So unless I went out of state to a different um, school somewhere, college somewhere else, I decided that I would stay with my parents, but I could not start college. So pretty much one whole year I spent uh, between high school and college. That was a tough year for me because I felt like, oh my God, what if I can never get to college? <laughs> but, you know, it turned out to be a, um, a good thing in some ways because I got a chance to learn German. I mm -hmm. took some German classes. And then I started learning Veena, which is a musical uh, instrument. It's one of the ancient musical instruments in Tamil in, in India. Mm -hmm. I used my time uh, effectively, read a lot of books, uh, so, and waited for the year to get over so I could join college. <laughs> yeah, which was not that bad after all then. Yeah, it, it wasn't bad, but at that time you can imagine you're 15 years old and wondering, oh my God, everybody else is going to college, I'm not going. Uh, will I ever uh, get there? Yes. One year seems like a long time at yeah. that age. Yeah. My party, which is my uh, grandmother from the mother's side, she used to play Veena as well. Uh, I heard from my mom that she even uh, attempted to play some Beatles songs, you know, in the 60s. I see, before, I yeah, see. Yeah. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, competition for entering college can be very, very high in India. Uh, did you have a tough time to join university? Uh, so when I joined uh, Madras, uh, uh, I joined Madras Presidency College in 1972, a year after my high school. And the admission process basically uh, based on uh, your high school uh, marks and your high school grades. Uh, how well you did in high school and uh, what your um, subjects and grades were. And uh, I did do pretty well uh, in uh, in high school. Uh, I was one of the top uh, students in the entire state. And you know, in, in, in India, in a state, the board exam has uh, hundreds of thousands of people. So, uh, you know, I had a good uh, record. And so getting into uh, presidency college was um, fairly easy, uh, if I say so ah. <laughs> it. It wasn't too difficult. Yeah, good for you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my mom also went to presidency college, uh, but for master's in chemistry, uh, I think she finished around 1965, so uh, a few years before you joined. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, how about uh, joining IIT for master's? Uh, was it difficult? Yeah, so when I finished my uh, undergraduate in uh, 1975 with a bachelor's in mathematics, uh, by that time my parents were already uh, in Delhi, they had moved to Delhi. So I knew that I would uh, like to go back and be with my parents and so I went there and I, ha I applied to IIT Delhi for a master's and uh, I, I, it you know, again, they went by your grades in your college, as well as they had an entrance exam, which included an oral interview. So we had to go to the interview. They asked us some questions. And then based on that, um, they selected the students. And so that's how I got into IE Delhi. Mm -hmm. So I did a master's in mathematics. Right. Uh, did you study any OR subject during the master's? 
Uh, there was one subject where we touched a little bit about uh, our optimization, but not in much depth at all. It was just a brief introduction. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we did mostly uh, analysis and functional analysis, linear algebra, and uh, those, types, those types of things. It's category theory oh. <laughs> and stuff like that. I see, I see. Yeah. Uh, but why did you decide to leave India for higher studies? Uh, so, um, when I finished um, my master's, uh, or the last year of my master's, I was exploring uh, about taking up a job in India. So, I was thinking of actually going into government service, just like my father. So, I was thinking of writing the, the um, government service exam for that. And I was sort of preparing for that. But at the same time, I had uh, this desire to do um, a lot of... Um, uh, traveling, uh, traveling was uh, very keen. Uh, you know, I was very keen to go abroad. Uh, I also was keen to do more maths, and so it seemed like a nice opportunity to marry the two uh, desires together. And, and I, uh, towards the, you know, in this um, final year when I started my second year in masters, I started looking at applying for co colleges and universities in the U.S. And uh, then, then I ended up in the U.S. after that. Did you apply to multiple universities? In uh, no, uh, actually, I applied. Uh, the only university I applied to was Cornell, and there's an interesting story behind that. Please tell me. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, when you're applying, uh, as you know, when you apply to universities, uh, you have to um, put in your application form with an application fee and all of that. And way back in 1977, uh, it was, I, I'm sure it was like $20 or something like that. But in India, um, it was it was more money. It was a lot of money. We come from a middle class family. So it was, um, so uh, applying to multiple universities would have been a problem. It was also a problem because you had to uh, send the money in foreign exchanges. So you had to get an application from the Reserve Bank of India, convert the Indian rupees to dollars, and then send it. So it was a lot of hassle. And so, um, you know, I had sent a pre-application to multiple universities, Cornell, uh, MIT, Harvard, and a bunch of others. And, um, you know, when I heard back from them and said they sent me the application form, I wrote back and said, hey, you know, it's it's a bit difficult for me to get through all these um, application fees. Would you be willing to waive my application fee? And I also offered that if I do accept and come to your university, at that time I will pay for whichever university I get accepted to. And, uh, you know, the only university which responded back and said, yes, we are willing to waive the, uh, the fees was Cornell. And so I ended up applying to Cornell and I didn't apply anywhere else. <laughs> so it was just a, uh, uh, an interesting um, way in which uh, the kindness of the university in trying to, um, and, and you know, they felt probably that, hey, here is an opportunity for a student and, uh, you know, let's give her this chance. And so they did. And I ended up applying, got admission got an assistantship, and I came to Cornell. <laughs> so, so relaxing so a constraint turned out to be a very, very good very solution, great. India. Yes, it, it, it was. And 
interestingly enough, uh, you know, I met my husband at Cornell as well. Uh, he had already gone there in 76 and I didn't know he was there or anything like that. But later on, I found out that he also went to Cornell and he had applied only to Cornell for the very same reason because Cornell had agreed to waive their <laughs> waive his fees too. So I guess, you know, hey, they got two students and the two students found each other and we got married. <laughs> Talk about destiny. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. that's amazing, amazing. Fantastic <laughs> to know about that. Um, and how was your mom's reaction? to your visa interview? <laughs> so, uh, you know, of course, I was um, supported by my parents. You know, I could not have uh, applied and uh, gone through everything um, without my parents' support. So they were fully supportive of me when I said I would like to go uh, to the US. Uh, but secretly, I think my mom was hoping that some other bigger um, uh, entity would, um, you know, make it impossible for me to go. So I still remember going to the visa interview and my mom took me to the U.S. Embassy. And, uh, you know, I went in and my mom was waiting outside for me. And I think she was secretly praying that I hope she doesn't get the visa. I hope she doesn't get the visa. But I did. Uh, so, you know, of course, uh, you know, she was uh, supportive. So, yeah. So her pujas did not work uh, as expected for her? Uh, no, her prayers did not work, but I guess her uh, well wishes did. <laughs> yeah, but uh, apparently uh, some of your friends uh, came to the airport to say goodbye and then they stayed with your mom, something like that, right? You told me the other day. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, my mom was very um, careful to not um, break down in front of me because she knew that I would need to be brave and go. I was the first person, not even the first female in my entire extended family to go to the US or go anywhere outside the country. And so at that age, at, uh, you know, many, many years ago, it was a big thing. So it was naturally, you know, there was some trepidation, some anxiety. But, uh, you know, my mom was careful to not let her anxiety show. But uh, what I heard is the moment she saw me leave and go away, uh, she broke down. And my friends who had come to see me off at the airport comforted her, went back home with her and uh, stayed with her the night so she wouldn't feel too bad. <laughs> yeah. But she's there with you nowadays, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. My parents uh, immigrated here and they stayed with me. Um, my mom is still with me. My father, unfortunately, passed away three years ago. Oh, sorry. But my uh, mom is still here. Uh -huh. And she drives. <laughs> yes, she does, which is also quite unusual for somebody of that generation. Yeah, but it's clear where you, you, you got uh, uh, some of your independence and influence. Maybe I think she, she seems to be a very strong person. And she even graduated later, right, in her life. Yes, yes. Uh, so, you know, she got married before she had a chance to do her undergraduate. But after um, a few years after her marriage, uh, my father encouraged her to uh, do a, a BA, and she did. And so it was through um, virtually in the sense in those days of course it was not an online thing but it was through correspondence courses so she did a ba in economics and uh, political science and english wow 
fantastic <laughs> a lot of influence then uh you should have got from her probably yeah yes yes definitely yeah it seems that you got involved with the cia when you arrived in itaka <laughs> <laughs> okay, I hope that doesn't drink set off some alarm bells in some uh, um, somebody who's watching over us. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, the CIA is what we used to fondly refer to the Cornell India Association. So um, even now, every um, university has um, multiple student groups from different ethnicities at the different groups, etc. So Cornell also had uh, an Indian association and it was called the Cornell India Association. And we used to joke that, hey, we are members of the CIA. So that's how. And so the members of the CIA, uh, you know, we, uh, through that, we used to have cultural programs, etc. And they, they made our uh, um, stay in the US comfortable. So even before I came to the US, um, the um, president of the Cornell India Association had written to all the incoming students coming us and telling us what we need to do and you know how we can get settled what sort of clothes we should buy for the cold Ithaca winters and so on so we knew that there was somebody there who could um, you know show us around and uh, help us as needed so yeah so and and, uh, you know through the years I stayed with uh, associated with who was the president of the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> the president actually, uh, yeah, I know where you're going with that. The president of the, C of the CIA at that time was my future husband. <laughs> so he, uh, you know, of course, like I said, I didn't know him before. Uh, he was the one who had sent the letter. And believe it or not, I was the only one who responded of all this incoming students. I believe I was the only one who responded to the letter and said, hey, thank you so much and, and all of that. So I guess he knew he should keep an eye out for me when I arrived, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I would respond. <laughs> yeah. And you, you guys got married uh, years later uh, and it was not an arranged marriage. And how did your family react? <laughs> Um, my parents were very supportive uh, and so, uh, you know, that helped, of course. There was a little bit of resistance from my uh, husband's family, but, uh, you know, they love, love me uh, a lot now. I'm one of their favorite sister-in-law, aunt, etc. So, uh, you know, and I think, um, you know, the fact that I can speak Marathi with them, which is their language, uh, my husband's language, uh, also made it easier so I could communicate as one of them. And, uh, you know, so when we go back to India now, um, the people I visit are mostly my in-laws because my family, uh, my immediate family is all out of the country. Mm -hmm. So when we go to India, we spend most of our time with uh, my in-laws. <laughs> Did you get your horoscopes checked? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, we did not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so there at Cornell, you really got to know more about OR, finally. Yes. Yes. So uh, I came to Cornell to do my PhD in mathematics since I had done my undergrad and master's in maths. And, uh, you know, I figured that the straight path was a PhD in math. And uh, I, I came there in 1977 fall, uh, started doing courses. And one of the requirements for a math PhD was to do a minor in one of the in some other subject. And I had picked uh, operations research as my minor. 
So my very first semester at Cornell, I took a course in linear programming and uh, with Professor Mike Todd, and I really enjoyed that class. I thought it was uh, a wonderful way of seeing how um, mathematical modeling can solve some really complex problems, and that attracted me. And so uh, at that point, I decided, hey, can I just switch to a PhD in OR? And I spoke to the maths department, the OR department, and uh, you know they were very uh, considerate, accommodating, and helped me to switch. You know, I had a teaching assistantship from the maths department, so for them to be able to say, okay, you can continue in OR, uh, you can still continue to be a TA in our department, teach calculus. I used to be a TA for calculus, so for two years I was a TA for calculus in the math department while I was doing my PhD, started my PhD. The two years I had a research last, uh, yeah, I had a research assistantship mm -hmm. with my advisor. Did you have and to write a dissertation at the end of the master's? Oh, uh, no, 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 it was a uh, non-dissertation uh, master's. So uh, through the coursework that we did uh, for a PhD, you pretty much completed all the requirements for a master's. So of two years, I got a master's in OR and continued on for my PhD. Right. Uh, and based on your uh, list of publications, uh, one can see that your PhD research had to do a lot with statistics and optimization, right? Yes. Uh, so the, the subsection of statistics uh, where I was working, which was still part of the OR department, was known as is known as ranking and selection. It's about selecting the best of different populations, different kinds of populations, etc. And my PhD thesis was a combination of using some uh, it was a sequential procedure and to find the optimal stopping rule so that we can we can select the best of uh, Bernoulli populations in the minimum number of observations uh, with the same uh, probability of success, with the same probability of success as if you had to take the entire set of uh, samples. So it was an interesting application of some dynamic programming and optimization and uh, the statistical principles. Yeah, you had to visit uh, several uh, areas of OR uh, or yeah. sub areas, if you will, yeah, to to, uh, yeah. to address yeah. that that project. Yeah, right. Uh, was there an experimental part? Uh, if so, which programming language did you use? Yeah, uh, so uh, I, I did a lot of programming, mm. uh, and the programming I did because you know um, I had a hypothesis as to you know what the stopping rule could be, and so I wanted to try it out for more and more uh, populations before I came up with a proof, and so uh, uh, so I, I used um, a form of PL one. Uh, Cornell had its own um, sub sub language, and we called it PLC. Mm. I guess we uh, uh, and and I use PLC for that. Punch cards and all that too, right? Yeah, yeah, punch cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This was uh, between uh, seventy seven and eighty one, so it was all with punch cards. Uh -huh. uh, you, uh, you know, a, a terminal coming into play. Towards the last, uh, in, towards the end, but it was still punch cards. Mm -hmm. uh, you moved to Atlanta at the end of your PhD, and you had to face some slight uh, immigration hurdles there. Yeah. Um, so um, my husband, uh, like I said, he was a year ahead of me, and he finished his PhD in 1980. 
and I was just in the middle of doing my dissertation at that point. So I knew that I still had at least a year more of work to do. But my husband got a job as a visiting professor at Georgia Tech. And so we were in a dilemma as to whether he should go ahead and I, I stay behind uh, in Ithaca while I finish my PhD, or should I accompany him and do my PhD long distance? Yeah, and remember, this was the days when we didn't have uh, internet or as easy an access on the phone even, actually. And so uh, it was a big decision for us. But my advisor, Professor Beckhofer, was very kind. He said that, uh, Radhika, go be with your husband. I will make sure that you can um, continue to work with me and I will make sure that I respond back to your email, not email, sorry, <laughs> uh, posts. You know, I used to put, write things by hand and send it by um, U.S. Post Office, etc., U.S. Postal Service, etc. And he was very prompt and we used to have some phone calls, you know, uh, call from there. But there, there were some challenges in the following sense, um, because uh, in order to stay in the U.S., I needed to maintain a, um, a student status, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, if I were to leave Cornell, I could no longer be a full-time student at Cornell, but I could be a student in absentia at Cornell. Mm -hmm. But in order to maintain my immigration status as F1 student, I needed to be enrolled in some university somewhere. And so at that point, uh, you know, we reached out to Georgia Tech and this, the business school, which, which is where my husband got his first job. Uh, they were very kind. They explored what, uh, what was possible. And the School of Industrial and Systems Engineering at Georgia Tech agreed to um, get, let me come there as a student but I was not going to take any courses, but they gave even gave me a teaching assistantship so that I could teach a class. I could teach a class, so I got some money, which was important. Uh -huh. And uh, I had access to the computing facility because I needed to do programming too. And uh, so I did my work there. Um, so I could do my PhD with my advisor. I could continue to stay connected to the university. And I taught quality control once up one year, and uh, I, I think one semester, I think, and then uh, I even forget what the other class <laughs> was. But I taught um, while I was there, and so so I was able to maintain my F1 student status. Nice. Yeah. Was, uh, so, so eventually... You know, thanks. I always thank uh, both uh, Cornell for letting me do this and Georgia Tech for welcoming me with this option. Yeah, very so. nice of them. Yeah, indeed. Yes. Uh, eventually you graduated, you got your PhD degree, uh, and your husband found a position uh, in North Carolina, and Correct. you you all you both moved there. Yes, that's right. Yeah, my husband got a, um, a tenure track position at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I, um, it, of course, I wanted to work as well, right? And so, and I did not want to move away from my husband. And so uh, UNC Chapel Hill, the Department of Operations Research at that time, uh, they offered me a visiting position so that I could teach uh, a couple of classes. And uh, I was a visiting position. I had a visiting position for two years uh, in, in, uh, mm. at UNC Chapel Hill. And so that enabled me to uh, be with my husband and uh, you know, continue. Uh, you know, I continued to write some papers coming out of my thesis, and so um, 
you know, it, it was uh, it was a nice uh, uh, transition for me, so so that I could continue uh, doing some academic work at right. that point. Yeah, but then you left and you you joined SaaS. So let's talk about your SaaS years now. Uh, you joined the company in 1983, uh, the year I was born, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know SaaS is very famous. Uh, but would you mind uh, briefly describing the scope of the company for those who are not familiar? Yeah, sure. I'll be glad to do that. And, you know, b before I get to that, uh, the reason I left uh, UNC was because it was a visiting position. Yeah. And once again, uh, you know, um, having a PhD, I did want to continue in academia, but because I was geographically constrained, I was looking around and I found the job at SAS. So that's how I ended up at SAS. It was an um, SAS is a uh, software company. It is the world's, it has the world's leading analytics portfolio of products. In those days, it was uh, mostly known for its uh, statistical software. SAS, stat, SAS statistical software is what uh, everybody knew SAS for at that time. And when they hired me as an OR uh, analyst, OR specialist, it it was because um, SAS was also starting to, to develop some products in some of the other, what we now call analytics, mm. in some of the other analytical areas. So optimization of operations research, quality control, econometrics, uh, and and. and uh, forecasting and so on. So they had started branching out in some of these and I was hired as the second OR uh, person ah. at, at R&D at that time. Yeah, you started your career working uh, on the development of project management and scheduling components uh, of the SAS OR software, correct? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. So they were, um, you know, at that time, uh, SAS was looking for somebody to take on the support for the scheduling software because it was, uh, um, you know, we felt that it was an important component of, you know, uh, SAS has always tried to be a comprehensive uh, set of tools for any particular area. So we were building out the uh, SAS OR product at that point, and they, we had some um, um, optimization software, math programming, linear programming, etc. And we had also started building out a critical path method and wanted to add some resource constraint scheduling, which is where the challenge comes. Mm -hmm. And so they were looking for somebody to take on support of that. And since I had an OR background, since I had computational experience, which was important because you needed to have both the research expertise as well as the computational expertise in order to support world-class software. And so because I had uh, both of that, I got the job and that's how I uh, joined SAS. And over the years, SAS has continued to grow and uh, you know um, the, the portfolio of products increased, data mining and the forecasting application software was added and many other areas artificial in artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, over the years. In addition, some business solutions were also developed and we got involved in all mm -hmm. of this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So SaaS portfolio is uh, it uh, you know as a, it's the largest privately held software company, and um, in terms of uh, revenue, uh, I believe if you take a look at the analytics portfolio, it has the largest uh, share of market share of the world's analytics portfolio. Wow. Yeah. Portfolio. Yeah. Big player, <laughs> for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
so 15 years after joining the company, you became management science R&D manager. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, since I was leading the uh, project management and scheduling software, we added some more people to do that. And so then I became the manager of that small subgroup. And then uh, in 2002, I believe the director of OR left um, to, to take up a different job. So then I became the director of the entire OR product, which included the optimization, uh, discrete event simulation, project management and scheduling and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I was the manager of the small subgroup and then I became the director of the larger group of OR software. Wow. And what were your main contributions in that role? Um, leading the development. And so um, around that time, SAS had started investing in, uh, in expanding the portfolio, like I said, to include some business specific solutions. So like in business domains like um, retail, financial services uh, and um, uh, other areas, we were uh, expanding business specific solutions which needed uh, multiple components from different uh, parts of the portfolio. But it also put a lot of um, uh, emphasis on the scalability of the OR software. And um, Dr. Goodnight, who is the CEO of SAS, he was keen that we should have our own uh, optimization software and not use one of the other software vendors. So at that time, uh, it, around 2002 or a little bit earlier, SAS was not really known as a player in the OR field. So, you know, we still used to go to Informs and uh, showcase our our product, but it, it was people knew us more as a statistical software, not as an optimization software. So we wanted to expand the strength and re rebuild our tools to be scalable and uh, match some of the leading software vendors in that area. So Dr. Goodnight gave me the charge to totally revamp our software. So we started from scratch and rebuilt uh, the entire uh, optimization portfolio, which included um, linear programming, mixed integer programming, non-linear programming, and uh, some heuristics and so on. So including all of these, that became a big chart. So our group, which used to be just about 10 people over time, expanded to be more than 35 to 40 people. And and we were charged with making our software world class. In addition, we were charged with the uh, task of um, providing custom components to our business solutions. So if there was a retail optimization uh, product which required some specific types of um, solvers, which were not the generic solvers, our team was responsible for that. So, you know, because some of the retail uh, op optimization products require a lot of complex nonlinear programming techniques. So we had to build some of those. For the markdown optimization, we needed to have some dynamic programming software. But uh, building a generic dynamic programming software is difficult. So, but for a specific business problem, we found ways in which to solve that. So my team was responsible for doing all of so my charge or my responsibility was to make sure that we hired the right people, gave them the right uh, opportunity to, to build all of these software products. So you probably had a squad of a lot of 
PhD uh, yes. researchers there. I mean, yes. a square. From, from, yeah. We had a whole uh, team of uh, really top notch, we st and SAS still does, of top, top notch um, PhDs in uh, OR. And in every one of the analytics area, we hired really top class uh, researchers. Yeah. Should have been a very good environment. And I wonder uh, how many female employees were working in the R&D uh, at that time, roughly. So, uh, you know, I was I went back to try and think about that. So when I took over as the director of OR in 2002, we had, uh, uh, I believe, one student employee, female student employee. And um, and before her, there had been, a, you know, SAS has always had a history of employing graduate interns. So so we had, um, you know, so we had one or two student employees, but no full time employee, female employee in the OR department. There had been uh, in the statistics department, which was uh, parallel to mine. We did have, uh, I believe, one uh, female employee at that time. Uh, over time, uh, the num membership, the number of female employees grew. And I think it might have been because, you know, uh, seeing somebody um, who is female and leading the group makes it easier and serves as a role model for others to join as well. Absolutely. So, so we ended up uh, with more, more of them. Right. Uh, and you became, uh, as you said, senior director of the advanced analytics R&D division of the company and soon after that, vice president. And among many efforts, you wrote in your CV that you evangelize externally the breadth and depth of the SAS analytics portfolio and the value of analytics in solving complex problems. Uh, can you please comment on this? Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I was the director of OR, I realized how valuable the optimization component could be for other products. I also realized how uh, wonderful and how important it is for the interdisciplinary collaboration between uh, the optimization folks, the statistics folks, and so on. So uh, I proposed to our senior leadership that you know it would it makes sense to pull all of these different analytical groups together into one division, and I made the case, and I um, you know they ex uh, accepted that, and so they created the analytics division, leader of this division. Uh, so I was I became the senior director at that point, and over time, um, you know that position got elevated to a vice president level. But the main focus, the main um, uh, direction that I gave to the division was the importance of ensuring that there was good collaboration among all these teams. Because uh, you know sometimes you may not even realize, but if you're trying to solve some specific problem in statistics or data mining or machine learning, there may be some solver that could help them and they may not be uh, aware of well, that. Yeah. And vice versa, you know, so, uh, trying to use a particular solver for one of these uh, methods might give rise to some research problem, which leads to the improvement of the solver, or maybe creating some custom solver, a custom solution method for that. So this inter uh, interdisciplinary collaboration helped a lot. 
Also, building the business solution meant that we needed to combine the ex expertise of all these different groups to build the overall solution, in addition to the data management layer, right? There is the data, and then you put together the different pieces. So for instance, uh, you know, I mentioned retail optimization and markdown optimization. You need to have some forecasting techniques. You need to have some excellent data manipulation uh, techniques, and then you need to uh, build some custom solvers to solve the problem and so on. So having this team work as one large interdisciplinary team made it possible to do that. So in the course of doing this, uh, I realized the value of thinking about analytics as a, an umbrella where all these mathematically, mathematical modeling techniques come into play. And it was the same message that I would convey to our customers, you know, when you're uh, trying to talk to them about the value of uh, investing in an analytics software portfolio. Uh, it helps to know how, this, how that really helps you build complex uh, solutions. And the same, uh, at the same time, um, INFORMS, the Institute for Operations Research and Management Science, was also entering the analytics arena. So I used to talk about the same um, experience that I had within SAS building the teams and then talking about how the same thing could help the larger um, professional uh, societies as well. Right. So. Uh, we've been talking uh, uh, about analytics quite a bit here. And I think it's important to take the opportunity to clarify the relationship between analytics and other fields such as data science, machine learning, AI, big data, optimization, OR, digital intelligence, decision science, business intelligence, and so on. <laughs> to many people, including a lot of students, uh, some of them are of my own, uh, these uh, areas are just a bunch of buzzwords, uh, but without an actual clear meaning, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, believe me, it's not confusing just to the students, but, um, you know, many folks. Over time, I think the term analytics has uh, been accepted by a lot of folks. Uh, data science is, uh, has also been used. Um, when you think of uh, analytics and especially the, some of the analytical modeling um, con concepts, then you're talking about mathematical modeling. But when you talk about data science, you're also um, emphasizing that in addition to the mathematical models, you need to have a good understanding of the data, where the data are stored, how the data are stored. Because more and more, as you see this big data problems that come up, the data for a particular problem may not even all be situated on one machine. They could be spread across multiple hardware, multiple CPUs. Yeah, distributed. So distributed exactly so you need to understand distributed computing so you need to have a good understanding of all these uh, aspects and in my mind uh, a data science degree gives you a broad understanding of all of these aspects it may not necessarily go into the in-depth modeling skills or the research level expertise for statistics let's say or uh, data mining or, or predictive modeling or optimization, but it gives you a broad um, uh, understanding of all these different fields. Yeah, an overview, that, basically. An overview, right? Now, many of the masters in analytics, or a lot of them are being renamed data science. Those programs 
concentrate on something like that, which gives goes from data to modeling to implementation. It gives all of that. Now, uh, if you want to become a researcher who's working on mathematical modeling uh, for any one of these specific types of domains, then you need to go even further and understand, you know, uh, how to do a mixed integer, what are the branch and bound types of things, and, uh, you know, nonlinear optimization, what are the challenges. If you're doing statistics, you need to understand all the modeling techniques and the methods that are needed to make uh, something really work, and so on and so forth. So um, I, I think that uh, analytics is basically uh, the overall Com combination of these different mo modeling tools. Okay, so the question often comes up: Where does AI fit in? In my mind, artificial intelligence is basically a highly automated, very very performant, data-driven decision modeling paradigm or a decision modeling environment, which uses all the tools that are available to address the different problems of the different uh, varieties. So um, AI, you know, uh, is, I, I wonder when AI, um, you know, the, the term AI will go away and something else come in. I just think that the what is important is the ability to solve a business problem, which includes framing the problem properly, understanding what the data needs are, understanding what types of modeling techniques, whether you call it analytics or you call it some data science techniques or AI tools, machine learning tools, you name it, mm -hmm. all of these pulling it together. Something that uh, people have used in the past is, uh, you know, they've or even now, they talk about analytics as you can have descriptive analytics, predictive analytics, prescriptive analytics. Uh, and, uh, you know, divide it in that fashion, where the descriptive analytics could be just understanding the data and trying to figure out what the data is telling you just by drawing graphs and so on. So a lot of times business intelligence may be restricted to something like that, right, mm -hmm. where you're understanding what is the data trying to tell you. Predictive analytics would include things like forecasting, mm -hmm. predictive modeling, etc., where a given data set at over time tells you something about the future, or a given uh, data set about a certain demographic tells you about other members of the population, etc. And prescriptive analytics would be taking all these models, which are telling you the relationships between the variables, and then using some mathematical modeling techniques to actually find the best solution or the almost best solution. So that's where the prescriptives to say, okay, here is the decision you need to take given that these are the constraints and these are the relationships between the variables. So there is a different, you know, there are different aspects of it and uh, trying to understand all of it is challenging, but I come back to the same thing, right? Uh, you need to uh, not be restrictive to what tools you want to use. The more kinds of tools you have, because different types of data will require different types mm -hmm. of tools. So increase the arsenal of tools at your disposal, understand the problem and model it, and then make sure you implement it. Thank you so much for this lecture. Fantastic <laughs> clarification. That no, was brilliant. Uh, I hope my students and other people, uh, you know, they, they also appreciate 
as I did. Uh, it, it was it was great. Uh, uh, the explanation was really good, uh, and also I think it also encourages people to look for the proper hammer uh, when addressing a problem instead of trying to you know adapt the the problem to your own hammer. That is a yes, common yes, and uh, practice sometimes. And 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 you know extending that you don't need to be an expert in every kind of hammer yeah right you need to make sure that you work with a team exactly. who are the experts and uh, understand what they bring people so that uh, spirit of collaboration across the multiple disciplines is very important yeah absolutely um so what is more challenging in your opinion impressing slash pleasing customers or people from academia uh, I wouldn't say that it's a matter of pleasing uh, either the customers or pleasing academia. Well, I have to please one academic person, my husband, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So let's leave him out of the picture. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't go. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so what I would say is that when working with customers, uh, you're not just trying to please them. You're trying to do what is best for them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might have to give them some answers that they're not happy about, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you need to understand what it is that they need, understand their problem and work with them, right? So that's how I always viewed working with customers. With regard to academia, uh, I would say that even though um, I spent um, almost all my career in industry, I work very closely with academia because I think the the relationship between academia and industry is a very a, a rich one. It has to be because throughout my career, I with many universities, um, well, first of all, the universities are pro producing the product who ends up working in the companies, right? Mm -hmm. So knowing what type of products the university is producing or what the university should produce is important. So that interchange is important. Often we also worked with some universities on some research proposals, helped them with it, gave them some suggestions. And there are uh, some grants called the Goli grants, which actually requires an NSF grant, which actually requires um, support of an industry so we've provided support like that we've hired a lot of summer interns and year-round interns from the university over my career I, I would say we've hired more than two two to three hundred uh, student interns over time wow. because they become the future employees and another relationship between the industry and academia that is very valuable in my opinion is because they are bringing the problems. Industry brings the problems often, you know. Mm -hmm. So for academicians, that's a great source of new problems. And the academics are bringing the research work that's going on. So uh, quite often we would engage in some uh, ad hoc consulting relationships with somebody when we're trying to explore some methods or new um, opportunities or new research directions and get their input and so that kind of collaboration is very very important so unless you have that uh, you, you know you cannot grow the research i believe so um it's a symbiotic relationship in my yeah. mind uh, academia and industry need each other 
to keep growing. And, you know, over time, um, you know, being able to change your academic curriculum to see what is needed in the future is important. And knowing what research is coming out of universities is important for industry. So I would say that it was a very, uh, uh, I, I always thought it was excellent to uh, work with industry, uh, sorry, with uh, academia, academia. And I've enjoyed that uh, relationship. And uh, I think it's very important for all of us to continue that. And you'll see many academic researchers who are working in some real challenging problems. And so mm -hmm. real world problems. So understanding what they've done is important and reading their research papers is important. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for, for sharing your views on this. It's uh, really, really nice. Uh, but Radhika, one thing that drew my attention is the fact that you still wear sari, that the traditional <laughs> Indian dress, after all these years. Uh, it's almost like a trademark in the OR community, I must say, at least in, in America. Uh, did you have any negative experience because of that? For example, when attending business meetings or even conferences such as those promoted by Informs? Um, I would say no, no. Uh, you know, I've always felt comfortable in a sari. And uh, when I went for my first interview at SAS, I went in a sari and uh, nobody commented on it. Nobody objected to it. And it didn't seem to raise any eyebrows. And so I said, hey, you know, I can continue to stay comfortable. And I did. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, when especially when you're in a um, professional environment where everybody is interacting on the basis of their strengths, uh, you know what you're wearing, what you like, or, uh, how is is not as important as the ideas at the table or what um, how much you contribute. So as long as people see that you have value to bring and that you are um, doing uh, your best to succeed for yourself, for the company, for the group, then that's what is important. So it doesn't matter what outfits uh, wear. And so uh, over time, uh, you know, I've always worn a sari, as, as you noticed. And uh, it is a trademark. It is my brand, right? <laughs> uh, so. Uh, uh, more recently, somebody once um, used the term superpower, uh -huh. and I, I like calling it my superpower because people remember me, right? Even years after a conference presentation, somebody might say, hey, Radhika, I remember uh, you gave this talk and this is what you said. So maybe it was the fact that I stood out. And then, of course, I gave a decent enough talk. They remembered me. But I think it helps, right? And. I feel comfortable in it, so I've never been um, about uh, it. Yeah, and but yeah, that. uh, that's that's fantastic. Uh, uh, of course, I'm biased for obvious reasons, but I think it's lovely. I think it uh, encourages other uh, Indian women, you know, to stay true to their roots and not trying to, you know, be maybe that much westernized or you know, trying to fit just to be accepted. And also, you know, talking about being accepted. Do you think that the fact that you didn't have much of a trouble in that sense, uh, both in university and uh, and the company, uh, that potentially helped you to develop your leadership skills, 
you know, the, your assertiveness and things like that, you know. Uh, do you think that has some relationship? Um, uh, you know, I think in a way I would extend um, the the attire and the dress that one wears and how whether you're comfortable in it or not to also the gender factor, right? So a lot of people ask me, have you ever felt uncomfortable because you're a woman and uh, have you had to change how you behave um, contrary to what you would do uh, in order to succeed? And I've always felt that if you just like your dress or what you wear, being female or uh, non-binary or any other uh, classification, if you are bringing something of value to the table and you are true to your um, uh, you, you know to what you need to do i think that's what counts people also ask me have you had to change how you behave you know as a woman leader what are the what is what is it that makes you successful do you need to be assertive or do you need to be um, you know to be accepted because a lot of times people feel that in order if you're a woman and you need to succeed in a leadership role you have to show your assertiveness in um, being more uh, bold or being aggressive or super uh, confident um, yeah right and i've always felt that i don't want to change my behavior or what i'm most comfortable with so i i, uh, I when somebody i will make sure i have the right um background i have the right points right facts and present that rather than doing it in an assertive or aggressive uh, you know i should use the word aggressive fashion because uh, you know when women uh, tend to become more aggressive then it doesn't come across well yeah. uh, and for people who are not used to that innately it's difficult so i've always used my own abilities and strengths when I lead people. So, uh, and I think one of the things I say is as a woman, you use your innate abilities. And one ability that I think most women have is empathy. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And being empathetic to a situation makes you understand other people's perspective. And once you understand other people's perspective, it's easier to convince or to come to a consensus. And listening to others is important. So all of these, I feel, are uh, abilities and traits that you have. You don't need to suppress them in order to fit into what is accepted in the, uh, mm. as a general mold. Yeah, that's a very beautiful message. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that. Uh, so uh, tell me about your long-term involvement with Informs. Uh, when did it start and how your participation evolved over the years? Yeah, so uh, I started uh, my association with Informs uh, right uh, when I was um, a student. So I used to, in those days, uh, it was uh, um, Informs, um, you know, there was an R subtitle two different yeah. organizations. So I was part of the Operations Research uh, Society and um, uh, I was involved uh, as a student. And then when I became uh, a member of SAS R&D, 
uh, we were always encouraged to attend professional um, conferences and be members of professional associations. So the OR folks uh, were members of INFORMS, for instance, and the stat statisticians were members of ASA, data mining folks, uh, KDD, and so on. So that connection was always there. And as a software ven vendor, we used to attend these conferences, talk about our software, and to present and listen to what's being done, what is the research topic, and uh, read uh, the papers and the journals that are coming out um, by, from these organizations. So throughout the years, I uh, kept um, uh, being involved. When in INFORMS, uh, you know, I was in, uh, involved in some committees on INFORMS, uh, you know, one a strategic planning committee a few years ago. Uh, I was um, engaged with uh, some of the leaders who were uh, driving analytics direction at informs yeah and, you were um, still uh, uh you were you were and still are a key player in the analytics movement in informs right yes uh i believe so <laughs> uh so i was working with many colleagues who were uh, very keen about that and i because i believed in it and i had experienced it at sas so to me it seemed like the right thing to do and um and and then uh over time uh when I retired um, at the end of 2018, uh, in 2019, the president of Informs at that time, um, Professor Krishnan, uh, he knew my passion for interdisciplinary collaboration and the work that we had done at SAS with um, bringing AI and ML and OR and all of those together. And so he asked me to co-chair a committee on AI on the in AI initiative. So I got more deeply involved in 2019. And I think that's probably what um, prompted me to also run for um, the board. So end of um, uh, so, so in 2020, I um, was part of the election for the informs board. So 2021 this year, I'm the president elect. So I've been again involved a lot in the AI OR initiative for uh, informs. We conducted an AIOR workshop in September, and we plan to do a couple more next year. And then uh, next year, I will be the president of Informs. So I hope that I can continue some of that. I can uh, strengthen the connection between academia and uh, uh, industry, and um, work on some of the DEI initiatives and uh, so on. So those are all some of my uh, for uh, for my next year. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I should be able to do a good job. <laughs> yeah, for sure you'll do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have, you have been successful throughout all your career. I don't, I don't see how it's it can be any different. Uh, 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 thank uh, you for your confidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, how is life after retirement? Retirement, no, because you're still very active. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. My husband jokes, "Hey, you know, you are supposed to be the retirement person, retired person. Why are you so much more busy than me?" <laughs> well, uh, you know, I retired end of 2018. In 2019, um, I was I, I was working on some of this AI initiative. I've given, I gave some talks. I gave a talk at Sabanchi University in Turkey, and so on. And then uh, in the fall of 2018, um, my husband uh, was on sabbatical. And so we sp spent four months outside the country. And uh, we spent six weeks in, in Netherlands, six weeks in Chennai, and mm -hmm. uh, two weeks in uh, Singapore, and then uh, Australia and New Zealand. So we did an around the world trip. 
so the first um, couple of places, Netherlands and Chennai, we were both involved with some of the universities there. So, so that was, uh, you know, not too deeply, but somewhat. And then, um, you know, we came back uh, December 31st, 2019, February, March 2020, the pandemic hit, right? <laughs> but uh, again, I've been busy continuing types of work. So uh, during the pandemic as well, I've given some virtual uh, presentations, some panel interviews. Uh, I've been very deeply involved with the AI initiative for INFORMS and uh, other uh, aspects of INFORMS. And, um, you know, when somebody calls me and asks me for some mentoring advice, I do that. So those are the types of activities I've been doing to give back to the community that has given me so much yeah, pleasure over the years. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, you visited Brazil uh, some time back, right? Yes. Uh, ISMP conference, uh, I think it might have been 2006, perhaps? Yeah, in Rio. Uh, in Rio, yeah. yes. So I was there, I gave a presentation there, and then uh, uh, I, uh, I also gave a presentation in Sao Paulo. Mm -hmm. with, um, I had gone to ISMP uh, for, for INFORMS, and since I was in Brazil, SAS had asked me to give a presentation about SAS software uh, to the SAS customers uh, in Sao Paulo, and I even went to Iguazu Falls. Ah, that's very beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, so now you yeah. still have to visit the northeast part of Brazil, yes. where I am. Uh, so Definitely, definitely. And as I mentioned, I love traveling. And so I'm just waiting for the pandemic to be over so that I can continue. And then, of course, you know, I talked about all of the uh, professional types of things I've been doing, but um, mostly uh, I've enjoyed the free time I have to spend uh, time on FaceTime, unfortunately, mm. and some visits with my grandkids. I have ah. two grandkids, uh, one a granddaughter who uh, will be six in 10 days and a grandson who will be um, four in February. So they both are uh, happy to talk with me on FaceTime whenever they have uh, time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and now that the pandemic is a little bit eased off and we are vaccinated, so we are, I'm able to visit them. So and then, uh, you know, spending time with my kids. Whenever and playing Veena too, still? Playing Veena as well. Yeah, thanks for reminding <laughs> me. So yeah, last year in 2020, I went back to learning Veena. So I've started taking Veena lessons again. And so I practice Veena. And then I also started uh, learning Spanish. Wow. on Duolingo mm -hmm. and and then I joined a book club so those are all some of my activities which keep me busy <laughs> yeah that's that's amazing uh, with some Spanish you can manage uh, here in Brazil they can somewhat understand we can uh, communicate more or less uh, uh, with people that speak Spanish uh, I speak uh, Spanish uh, reasonably okay uh, and uh, I mean, it's uh, it's still learning a new language uh, at this stage is it's very very uh, impressive and inspiring. Uh, well, Radhika, uh, it was fantastic to to have this conversation with you. Uh, you mentioned that we should be comfortable, but you made me very comfortable, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Anand. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've been uh, very kind <laughs> uh, in how you helped me prepare for this and all of that. So yeah. thank you very much. That's and, my pleasure. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm really happy that we connected. 
Uh, as I said, you're most welcome to, to visit us here. And I just... I would love to. Yeah, I, I just want to. to say thank you very, very much for your time and for doing this. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Anand. Uh, how do you say thank you in uh, Portuguese? Obrigada? You should say obrigada. <laughs> obrigada. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, I will say in Tamil, Rombo uh, Nandri. <laughs> namaskaram. I'll say here, namaskaram. <laughs> and talk to you soon. Ciao. Bye. See you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>